0: This week's Tribcast is sponsored by UT Health School of Public Health is changing the culture of health through excellence in graduate education, research, and engagement. Visit sph.uth.edu to learn more. And it's time, Texas. The Healthier Texas Summit series opens June 29th with a health and social justice discussion exploring equity and systemic change. More at HealthierTexasSummit.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the June 24th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by public education reporter Aliyah Swaybe. Hello. Managing editor Matthew Watkins, who finally has a reason to be in his closet because there are roofers on his roof.
2: <laughs> Hello.
1: <laughs> and executive editor Ross Ramsey, who has a very fancy chair that you all cannot see. <laughs> You're
2: even Ross asked. Looks like They should be smoking Howdy. a pipe. I can do this. Tell you oh, the story. Yeah,
3: next time I'll bring a cigar. We'll do it that way. It'll be great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we are going to back up all the way to last Wednesday because, of course, while we were sitting here recording last week, um, that is the moment when we got some news that I actually really want to talk about. Uh, last Wednesday, after pulling down these local mandates for individuals to wear masks, Governor Greg Abbott signed off on Bear County's plan to require. Businesses to require the map. Um His way of blessing that plan struck a interesting tone. Matthew, do you want to do a little storytelling for us here?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, although Ross is in the storytelling chair, so maybe we should do <laughs> <Yeah. that. laughs> gather,
4: around,
2: um, gather. No, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, at this time last week, we were sitting here talking about, and I, you know, I believe we how. Uh, you know, Abbott has been encouraging mask use, but that he has a certain amount of agency here and he could let local officials mandate mask use in public or, um, or you know, impose an order himself. Um, and basically, as we were saying that, the picture started to change here. You know, um, local officials, particularly in the big cities, have been asking for the ability to impose mask orders for weeks now, ever since Abbott took that um, away when he did the kind of the first phase of reopening. Um, and uh, last week, Abbott was kind of cryptically talking about how, you know, they're not using all the measures they have at their disposal. And then Wednesday, while we were on the podcast, um, Bear County Judge Nelson Wolf put out this order saying, basically, you know, we're not going to penalize people for not wearing masks, which is banned by Abbott, but we are going to penalize businesses uh, that don't require masks in their, you know, stores, restaurants, whatever the business is, if social distancing is not possible inside those businesses. And so this then created kind of this big question of, you know, well, is um, is Abbott going to, uh, uh, you know, shoot this down? Uh, or is he, you know... Uh, is is he going to kind of let this slide? Is this going to be kind of the loophole? Um, and Abbott went on KWTX, a TV station in Waco, and his quote was that Wolf finally read what we had written and what they now realize they are capable of doing is that we want to make sure individual liberty is not infringed upon by government, and hence government cannot require individuals to wear masks. Um, you know, the... He later went on to say, you know, businesses, they've always had the opportunity and ability, just like they can require people to wear shoes and shirts. These businesses can require people to wear face masks if they come into their businesses. Now, local officials are just now realizing that that was authorized. It's and like
3: a video gamer telling telling everybody, they just unlocked the treasure.
2: Exactly, <laughs> yeah, you cracked the code. You,
3: you, right? you cracked the code, right. I
2: mean, so, so yeah, I, mean look, uh, look, I was going to say, Go ahead. I was going to say, the you know, I think the reaction among local officials was, you know, I don't think it's an understatement to say that there was kind of a sense of bafflement about this. You know, they've been asking, they had all written a letter, you know, a few days earlier saying, please let us impose mask orders. And, you know, now Abbott is saying, you could have done this all along. And they were asking, you know, why didn't you tell us if, if this was something we could have done, if this was something that, you know, Frankly, you he was kind of seemed to be encouraging them to do. Why why wasn't that message uh, passed on to the local officials who were asking for this ability? I, I think you know there were some questions that were raised after this about kind of the communication between the state and the the cities and the counties um, that I, you know continue to persist today.
1: Yeah, I mean, because if you like, if we walk through this, Abbott let his stay at home order expire in May. And in announcing his reopening plans, issued a new order that overruled any local government mandates, including those on masks. Attorney General Ken Paxton was writing to local officials saying people are free to choose whether they want to wear one or not. And obviously a letter coming from the AG, the state's lawyer, is something that comes with some weight. And then this many weeks later, Abbott says, you know, Bear County finally figured it out in terms of what they could do. So why not make this clear sooner, right? Like, why not offer this guidance to locals when we are talking about limiting the spread of something that we know can be inhibited to some extent by wearing masks?
3: Looks to me like the intent changed, that the governor's intent at the beginning of this was to you know, remove punishment for not taking government orders and was a response to sort of the civil libertarian wing in this, you know, back and forth about, you know, civil liberties and the economy and the pandemic, and that, you know, by the time San Antonio came around, San Antonio was starting in the early days of what now is obviously a big spike, and they wanted some way to get this out there. But he Abbott already took away his own ability to enforce this and had removed the city's ability to enforce this, so they found another door to go through. You know they're sort of moving around who's going to be the heavy here. you know if the state's not going to do it and the locals aren't going to do it, well, let's make the the owners of those businesses do it, but somebody has to tell you to wear a mask and and they've removed their own ability to do that
1: i mean so the the Abbott's sort of blessing of Bear County came. After we were hearing from local officials saying, please give us the power back to do this, Abbott in a press conference himself said, you know, there's no need for a statewide order. We need some flexibility. Austin, Texas is different than Austin County, Texas. But is that not what local officials are asking for if you were to give individual counties or localities to be able to do that? If the intent has changed here, and you still want someone to be able to enforce masks, there is a request out for locals to be able to do that themselves on individuals, right? Like there's still room for that to happen.
3: Sure, sure. and the governor can always say, I'm gonna amend my previous order and allow locals to do X and Y and Z. He's the king, he gets to make the king's X.
1: Well, so, while Abbott has resisted those calls, we, in the last week alone, have seen these consecutive days of record highs and daily new cases. We're more than a week into record highs of people being hospitalized. Uh, to borrow a line from a story by one by our colleagues, the number of patients hospitalized with the virus in Texas has more than doubled since the beginning of the month, reaching 4,092 on Tuesday. That was, I think, our latest numbers have it a little bit higher than that. Or sorry, that was actually Tuesday. So, but Abbott in recent days has made some changes to his reopening plans. He's allowing locals to set restrictions on gatherings over 100 people. He's enacting these mandatory health standards for childcare centers after previous rules had been when became voluntary earlier this month. But he has said that closing down the state again will always be the last option. Like even though he is the king here, he has pretty clearly signaled that that is. A last option. And it does seem kind of unlikely at this point that we will return to that despite more people getting sick and being hospitalized now than we were ever shut down before. It seems hard to imagine uh, an order coming from Abbott's office in which we shut down things the way they were before, even with these record numbers.
4: Yeah, I feel like a lot of the the response throughout this pandemic has just been sort of, you know, reactive, you know, responding to, okay, people are mad about this thing, okay, then I'm going to, you know, take away local officials' ability to put people in jail for not wearing masks. Okay, now we see the cases spiking. Okay, now I'm going to allow it to go forward in this other way. Um, you know, we saw child care case, case, COVID cases at child care centers um, spiking after the state had repealed its emergency orders for them um, to keep kids safe. And then, you know, okay, the emergency rules are put back. But we, I don't, Know that we're seeing something comprehensive. You know, I think that a lot of the the backlash that we're seeing to what Abbott is doing right now is people being really as, afraid of what um, the rising cases means for them, and not feeling like there's some sort of comprehensive plan moving forward to get out ahead of them instead of reacting to them.
2: Yeah, you know, when when we kind of shut down in uh, and- this, you know, what I think at the time we were calling the first wave, although, you know, I think a lot of people kind of agree we're still sort of in this first wave of the coronavirus. Um, you know, the, the initial process of shutting down was in a large part taken on by local government officials. It was the cities and the counties, particularly the big cities in the counties. By the time Abbott stepped in and did his kind of non- stay-at-home order, stay-at-home order, that was statewide. Most of the kind of big population centers in Texas, the local governments had gone and done that themselves. So he didn't really have to be the one that said, shut it down in that case. He was kind of following the lead of those local officials. But then, of course, when we started to reopen, he made himself kind of the person who was driving the reopening and took that agency out of the local officials. And now we're in this situation where the case are rising again in an alarming manner, you know. I think we've seen both in the language and the ac- actions of Abbott in the past couple of days that he's very concerned about this. But now he's kind of put it all on his shoulders. Now, you know, he took away that power from the local officials, and now they—it's basically going to have to be him to make that decision. Of you know, does the state open or does the state stay shut? You know, uh, two months ago or in in March. And he, the idea of things are different in Austin and Austin County wasn't that big of an issue because he was allowing the local officials to make those individual choices. Uh, Now he can't do that. And, you know, to be fair, he was getting criticized for letting the, leaving it to the local officials at the time. You know, there, you heard a lot, including from us, talking about kind of the patchwork system. And now it's like we're all kind of looking back at that patchwork system and wondering, you know, whether people want to have that back.
3: He's not going to get himself in a place where people don't yell at him. He's the governor and that's what the job is. And you know, he just has to pick a road and stick to it and if he had stayed on the road he was on in March, the state's going to enforce up to this line and leave anything beyond that to local control, then he wouldn't be having these issues now. But he also would have had some constraints about His ability to shut down restrictions when he was trying to open the economy. It's just a matter of which problem he's responding to at any given moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think you can see the affinity or his affinity toward which approach he is comfortable with right now in what he is willing to do, right? His team has seemed to signal that he still has tools open to open a more hospital bed capacity, right? Likely by imposing this previous order, he had to halt these elective procedures. But that's very different than taking action to halt the spread, right? Like, that. so far, that's just been a recommendation to wear a mask and stay home. And I think if you are a Texan who doesn't watch these press conferences, who doesn't look at the daily numbers the way we do... The messaging you received was, months ago, I was told to stay home because it was unsafe. Now, I can go to a restaurant, and I don't have to stay home in the same way because those aren't the rules anymore. And so if right. you are an average Texan, not us, someone, the like non-Twitter world of Texas, you- Normal people. It's normal people. The messaging that you are getting is in these statewide actions in a lot of ways, and so far- Those are recommendations right now. Well, so I also want to back up to last week to talk about the news that we got last Thursday that students would be returning to public schools in person in the fall. Aaliyah, we're gonna get to yesterday's developments, but first walk us through this announcement and the reactions you heard from, from teachers and parents once they realized kids were actually going to be back in classrooms come August and September.
4: So last uh, Thursday, um, governor Abbott told state lawmakers in a private call that, um, it was safe for students to be back in the fall and that he wanted students to be back in the classrooms. Um, he also said that, uh, state officials wouldn't require school districts to, um, mandate masks for staff and students or to, uh, test them for COVID-19 symptoms. So, uh Obviously, that sparked a lot of panic, especially because it came with no additional details from state education officials who were supposed to be, I think that their um, guidance for how this would roll out all of the details of that had been pushed back multiple times already. Um, and you know, teachers, I think, were among the, teachers and parents are among the most confused and, and the most concerned Um wondering what their plans are gonna be for working or for sending their kids to, to school in the fall. Yeah, I've been are thinking
1: they, oh, sorry go go ahead. Ahead, I'm
3: just curious if the if the teachers and parents have any idea why it's getting pushed back. Are there particular issues or are they basically ready with a set of ideas, but the timing keeps being wrong?
4: For the the T E A
3: or yeah, right, right. Is you know, they're ready to go and then they hold and then they're ready to go and then they hold. Why are they holding? Is it an argument or is it timing?
4: Yeah, I mean, that gets into what happened yesterday. Basically, the the state was supposed to be rolling these details out to superintendents on a call in the afternoon. um, And the commissioner gets on the call and tells superintendents that he doesn't have those for them, that they're still being worked out. And I think that you know, a lot of superintendents or the ones that I talked to at least took that to mean we know that the cases are going up. We know that the public health guidelines that we're going to roll out to you, um, which, you know, were found in a a draft, um, in their staging area. Um, They (laughs) They Uh, uh, (laughs) They basically had the similar, similar to what Abbott has been doing all along, had mostly recommendations and not very many mandates for how to keep kids safe. Um, and so, you know, as the cases rise, I think you know you could read between the lines of, okay, well, rolling these out at this time would not be great. <laughs> rolling these out right. at this time when parents have been telling school leaders for months that they wouldn't feel comfortable sending their kids back as the cases were rising especially if the cases were rising in their local areas um would be right. you know disastrous for a lot of school leaders who are trying to plan what their school year looks like during a pandemic
1: yeah i mean i've been thinking about uh, the point that you made in your story and the reality that the majority of students in texas are hispanic and low income and you know inequity has long been built into the public school system in texas but it feels like we're opening up sort of a possible exacerbation of that, right? Like if a school district gives families the options of staying home or sending kids to school, there are resources some families will have that will make keeping their kids home more manageable, right? And, you know, I I realize that going remote meant that districts lost contact with thousands of children, many of them already vulnerable, but it seems like you can't really avoid the lopsided risk that could come from this for certain students whose parents can't really afford or manage to keep them home during all this. Forget about like fear or risk or comfort level about sending them in. There are people who just literally can't afford to keep their kids home because they have to work and you know, be able to provide for those kids.
4: Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, I've talked to a couple of superintendents who um, there's their school populations are mostly um, black and Hispanic kids. and I think that those parents are saying that they don't want to actually send their kids back. Um, and you know it it might be that they have to um, you know if if they have to go back to work if the if businesses are continuing to stay open by the time that school starts. but I think that, um, you know they understand the risks for them and their communities. You know even though it's unclear um, how the the virus spreads for for children, and it seems like they probably their symptoms are less severe, they can still spread it, you know, and and in communities that are already vulnerable, where, you know, if you go to if you talk to people in black and Hispanic communities, they are more likely to know someone who's died from COVID-19, more likely to know someone who's gotten it or been hospitalized than someone if you if you go to a majority like white community. Um, they understand what the risks are because they're seeing it where they live.
1: Yeah, I mean I also I think a lot about the what does educating in the pandemic look like when the politics of coronavirus overlap with the reopening of schools right like the governor has cast the act of using masks and staying home as one of personal responsibility but how does that work with children, right? And, and how does that work when the children are in the care of the government in the way they are when they're in public school classrooms? And, you know, we know that the state is probably or may likely take a light-handed approach to this the way they have with other parts of this pandemic. But, you know, we how much can you extend personal responsibility to little boys and girls or right. children? Yeah. children? Right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I think either way
4: it's going to be hard for them to, um, you know, even in district, I think a lot of districts are planning on requiring masks, you know, like a lot of them know that parents just will find other options or leave if they don't think it's safe. Um, So I think you know, they know that they have to do that, but I don't know what that means in terms of the ground level. Like, what does that mean in a classroom, right? Like if a kid is not wearing their mask regularly, if they don't have enough masks, I think teachers are already stockpiling masks because they don't think that their districts will provide them. It's just, if there's no statewide or, or at least like district level, um, mandates for what that should look like, it's just going to be a mess in the fall.
3: They have all these choke points, you know. Like, there's a transportation choke point. If you have an 80 seat bus and you're social distancing, how many kids can you put on that bus? And if you can't put, you know, you can't fill the bus and run 10 trips, then you have fill the bus and run 20 trips. You know, it works like that. It just gets, you know, the practical constraints on this are crazy.
4: Yeah.
2: But I, I also just think about, you know, I, I, I view a lot of this just as a, the parent of two young elementary-aged kids, and, you know, one, just thinking about, like, uh, how challenging it will be to get my five-year-old to wear a mask all day in school, and, like, what are the actual odds of doing that? But then I also just think about, like, you know, the the educational challenges that this whole thing has presented, you know? I mean, go being someone who ha- has kids in a school where there's a lot of economic and racial diversity, you talk about like some parents who's, uh, you know, their first grade where you're supposed to be learning to read uh, the like last quarter of the school year got cut off. And some kids have been, you know, working with private tutors to, to kind of keep trying to learn to read or having their parents read with them every day. And there are other parents who are other kids who they don't speak English in their households and have not been in an environment where, People are, are speaking English for months now, and it could be even longer. And so, you know, these, especially kids in these, like, very formative years where the idea of just, like, you know, sit down and read your history textbook is not, like, going to work. You know, there's, there are going to be huge problems with just, like, the level of preparedness beyond what just is already encountered in schools. That, like, some kids are going to need a lot of catching up to do. Um just the, the logistics of that, while also managing who comes to school, what you need to wear, who's online, who has access to the internet—is, I mean, it's it's just a massive challenge, a massive undertaking for these schools.
4: Yeah, and I do think for some kids, it's going to be a lose-lose. You know, like I think you could either send your kid. To school, where they have more resources, they have you know the internet connection they need, they have a teacher who's going to teach them, but risk them getting sick or bringing something back to the family, or you keep them home. Where in a in a family where the parent has to go to work, you know you have a young child who's then responsible for submitting assignments on their own, or like you know, or like with the help of an older sibling. Um, if if you're in a family that doesn't speak English. Um, you're not getting the same amount of exposure to it as, as you would have otherwise. Like, I just think either way, there are some families who are just gonna, gonna lose out because of the pandemic. And I think that, you know, a lot of that has to do with things that are beyond the education system's control. You know, it's like existing disparities in our
1: society. All right. Well, before we move on to our last topic, we've got two more sponsors to go to
0: Lone Star College nearly $3 billion annual economic impact. Lone Star College provides a solid ROI and has maintained a AAA rating, the highest rating possible since 2009. More at lonestar.edu. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at raiseyourhandtexas.org.
1: All right. So this is the last trip cast before early voting starts for the primary runoff. So let's do a rundown of what to expect in what's typically a low turnout election. Um, that's usually a pretty quiet part of our election year if runoffs are necessary. Ross, what are we watching for?
3: Well, you know, turnout is the main thing. You know, when you get a runoff, it's always lower than in an, any other kind of election. When you move the uh, runoff to mid summer, that cuts into what's already a low turnout. And when you do it during a pandemic, that cuts into it again. So we're wondering who, if anybody, is going to show up for this thing? What's going to happen with uh, vote by mail on a practical level? You know, you've um, covered in great detail what's, what's happening with it in the courts and what's happening as, as a legal matter. But what are people actually going to do? Are more people going to file absentee ballots? Are those going to be challenged? Um, after watching elections in other states, there's going to be our first test run on how long it takes to count votes. You know, the the sort of standard line going around in election circles is we don't have Election Day anymore. We have Election Week. You know, you're going to get these long counts, and it's going to take a while to to figure out how things go. And, and we're going to get, you know, a look at how you conduct elections during a pandemic. And, you know, how do you protect the judges? Who are, you know, it's not unusual for the election judges to be elderly people who are in the um, at risk set. You know, there's all of these things like that. And after all of that stuff, then you get to what's on the ballot, you know, which is sort of a low draw election. We have a, a Senate, US Senate runoff on the Democratic side that's probably the big draw over there. I think there are 15 runoffs for congressional races and the Republican and Democratic parties combined. 14 for state house races and a couple of special elections, but for the most part, this is not the kind of election that is. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention either because of the the races on the ballot, or you know, just as likely or maybe more likely because of the pandemic and the protests and the economy. But for all those reasons, I think it's going to be a low turnout election, and then sort of sets the wheels in motion for November in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what would normally be a quiet primary runoff is really basically a high-stakes dry run for November. And there are all these systems that are trying to be set in place. We delayed the primary to give people more time to do that, but also to avoid a spike that could come from people congregating at the polls. Of course, cases are worse now than they would have been had those elections moved forward when they were initially scheduled. But also, you know, we know we have problems with every single election, right? Some of them bigger than others. Some of them is a polling location opens late and the person who was in line at 7 a.m. can't come back the rest of the day on election day and doesn't get to vote. Some of them require people to wait in line for six hours like we saw in Harris County in March. But I think a lot of that will be made worse during a pandemic, right? Do those quote unquote small problems become worse during this? And I think what we're also seeing are the limitations within our existing election system, where it it doesn't run perfectly even in normal times, right. but it's definitely not built for a pandemic, right? Even if you just think about the first step in participating, which is registering, you have to do that on a paper, right? We don't have an online registration system, and so you either have to figure out how to get one mailed to you that out, someone then has to touch the paper that you are using, and someone has to deliver that mail, obviously, to the voter registrar. And if not, you have to find someone who you have to stand across from while they register you, register you to vote. And so I, I think the, the existing limitations of the system could be exacerbated even in a low turnout election, which is what we're expecting. But I think we're also going to see the extent to which our system is not equipped for even things like voting by mail, because such a small amount of people do it. With so much attention that has come from it, there have been increased application rates in a lot of places. But at the same time, there are people who don't even know if they qualify to vote by mail, even though they might under these sort of moving uh, definitions of it within a pandemic. And that's all me rambling to say that it's going to be pretty scary to think about you know, if one person being disenfranchised is one too many, the scale of disenfranchisement from a pandemic, it's just like this huge unknown and moving target that's only going to get worse between yeah, now I th- and November.
4: I thought it was interesting in the story that you wrote about, you know, just interviewing voters about this ahead of, ahead of the, the election, just how many of them didn't realize what the rules were. You know, it's been ping-ponging back and forth in federal courts and in state courts and... Right people who are like we talk about people who are not on Twitter all the time like us the people who just like have not been like making it their life's work to follow (laughs) what the actual law says now or how to you know qualify for mail-in ballots like I think that 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 was you know the difference between the, what the policy actually is, what the interpretation of the policy could be, and then like what, how people are receiving that or not receiving that information, um, I think is, you know, just makes it something to, that will make the election even harder.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think like no one, no one could have seen a pandemic coming, right? Like, when certain reforms to the system were considered or rejected during the last legislative session, there was no way to know the way those things would be complicated by a pandemic. But I I don't think we can look at some of these rules post-pandemic and not see their limitations in a new light. If it is so much work for a voter who the system is supposed to work for, if they can't even figure out what the existing rules are when they need to use them. Uh, And and I, I wonder how much of that will last from now to November and obviously from November to the legislative session when any of this can change. All right. Well, on those two depressing notes, that is all we have for you today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, the UT Health School of Public Health. It's Time Texas, Lone Star College, and Raise Your Hand, Texas. On behalf of Aaliyah, Matthew and Ross and our producer Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.